If you have your Bibles, please turn to uh, Luke chapter 1 as I tie my shoe. Luke chapter 1, and as we speed through this wonderful book, we're all the way up to verse 11. Woohoo! Hey, there's no hurry. Uh, you know, we'll just, we just uh, read a couple of verses, and I just pray, God, what, what do you want us to learn from this verse? And whatever kind of jumps out is what we talk about. But we're just kind of slowly going through this book. I also want to say uh, a thank you to Sandra Unger, who gave a great message on discipleship last week. Amen. I, I have just been in a very busy mode. Uh, I did, was out in Michigan last week and uh, did a, an Experiencing Jesus seminar and some other things, and it was a wonderful time. But then my daughter's uh, daughter graduate, graduated from college uh, this last week, and then my other daughter's getting married next week, and it's like I'm in that season of life where you can remember me and my wife, especially my wife in prayer. Uh, it's a very busy time of life. But I want to entitle this message, uh, The Invisible Society... The truth about angels. And uh, we'll read three verses, starting with verse 11 from the TNIV version. Then there appeared to him, that Zechariah, an angel of the Lord, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. As you know from previous messages, Zechariah was chosen by Lot to go into the inner court uh, and offer up incense as a symbolic way of, of uh, showing how good the temple stuff smells to God. While the people prayed and they worship and they offer sacrifices. That's what temples do. And we're the temple of God. So we've been talking about how our life is to consist of worship and prayer and sacrifice. So here's Zechariah. He, he lights the incense and then an angel shows up. And when Zechariah saw him, he was terrified. Apparently this angel didn't look like one of those fat babies with wings with an arrow. Uh, in fact, more often than not, when angels show up, people get freaked out. And fear overwhelmed him, but the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear uh, you a son, and you will name him John. Let's pray for the message. Can I get some people around the auditorium to sprinkle in their listening with prayer? That the word would have all the authority it needs to have. Thanks. Father, as you opened up uh, Elisha's servant's eyes to see the angelic hosts that were around him and how that gave comfort and reassurance to his heart, do that to us, Lord, whether we can physically see angels or not. Help us to be aware of them, to learn about them, and, Lord, to see the difference this makes in our life. Father, our goal is to be kingdom people. Nothing else matters. Uh, and so use this message to further the growth of the mustard seed kingdom in our lives, in our worldview, in the way we assess our, our experiences, just saturate us with the kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Here we find an angel of the Lord uh, coming to Zechariah, apparently in response to prayer. We'll see in the early chapters of Luke that angels show up quite frequently. But that's really pretty typical of the biblical narrative. Uh, at, at decisive moments, these beings that we call angels show up. God can, of course, do everything himself if that's the kind of world he wanted to create. But it's very clear that he being the triune social God who created the world for the purpose of, of uh, inviting others in on his love, he's a God who wants to work socially. He works through mediaries. And we are his mediaries on one level, and angels are his mediaries on another level. So they show up at crucial moments. 
is the topic that I've always been interested in. I, I've always had a fascination with angels, loved angel pictures. I think it goes back to an experience I had that I've shared before when I was five or six, maybe seven years old in Lansing, Michigan. Had a very kind of troubled home, and, and I would run away from home periodically, on a weekly, if not daily basis. And I'd always go to the same place in the woods that was around our house. There was this opening in the woods where the light would shine through, and uh, it was sort of my secret place. I had toys buried out there and a treasure buried out there, and I, I kind of owned this place. And one day I was crying very hard. Uh, I, I, I don't know exactly, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I know I was hit very hard because I had cold packs on my face. And I, I threw them by the side of the house and ran out to my secret place in the woods and cried myself to sleep on the edge of this oval of light in the middle of this uh, forest. I woke up sometime later. I don't know how long it was that I was asleep, but I woke up and the wind had picked up while I was sleeping. And there were these pine trees and evergreens all over the place. And the wind was whistling through these trees, creating that whistling sound, that shh, that kind of sound you know what I'm talking about? And that is still to, my, to this day the most, most soothing sound I know. I love that sound. And I woke up, but I kept my eyes shut, and I was just listening to the whistling going on. And, I, and I, I, at one point I began to think I could hear whispering, like the angels were whispering. Um, and there's a lot of them. It was like, like a crystal sea of voices. And I couldn't make out what they were saying. I wouldn't open my eyes because I was afraid that that would make them disappear. So I kept my eyes shut, and I just listened. And once in a while, I could hear my name. And they're talking about me. And I was at that moment just overwhelmed by this incredible sense of peace. As a five or six-year-old boy, I just had this, just, these are my friends. I just felt so secure in that moment. And I had this assurance that somehow or other it's going to be all right. And it could have been, I can't rule out that that was just a little boy's imagination and maybe God was just using my imagination to bless me. I don't think that's really the issue. Uh, but that was the beginning of my, my kind of affection for angels and the awareness that I'm surrounded by them all the time and, and there, there are beings like that looking out for me. And as a matter of fact, things did turn out okay. Um, now, I, I've continued that interest in angels, but for slightly more profound reasons, I think, although maybe you can't get more profound than that. But it's why I, I like to periodically talk about angels. Here an angel shows up in the text, and it's like, well, this is a good time to get our head on straight about what these angelic beings are. It's a particularly important time right now because um, there, there has been, since the 80s, an explosion of interest in angels. In fact, I just read that during, between 1980 and 1990, one out of every top ten pop songs uh, mentioned angels of some sort. There was an explosion of books and art on angels, and it continues to this day. In the 70s, you could go to the bookstore and look up angels, and you might find two or three books written by Billy Graham and given a Christian perspective on angels, but that'd be about it. Now you go to the bookstore and you'll still find probably two or three Christian books written on angels, but you find two or three hundred books written from other perspectives on angels, and they're in the New Age section or the occult section or things of that sort. I went on Amazon.com just to you know, put in angels, show me what you got on angels, and found thousands of books on angels. Uh, here's the titles of some of them. Archangels and Ascended Masters, A Guide to Working and Healing with Divinities and Deities. 
Healing with the angels. How the angels can assist you in every area of your life. Angel therapy. Angel medicine. Messages from your angels. Ask your angel. Your guardian angel and you. Messages from your angels. What your angels want you to know. And it goes on and on. Uh, there was one, it's not in print now, but it was, uh, it was angels and tantric sex. Uh, which tantric is, is a form of uh, Buddhism or kind of mysticism. And I don't know anything else about the book. I didn't read it. Uh, but <clears throat> I'm not even sure why I brought that up at this point. But it, it, it just shows you. <laughs> well, because you don't usually get sex and angels to... Well, maybe you do. But the point is that, that there's a lot of weirdness out there when it comes to this topic. And so it's very important that people who... Uh, live by scripture, get a biblical understanding of angels so we can kind of like cipher through some of this. And so what I want to do here is give four teaching points on angels and then four quick application points, what difference this makes to our life. So teaching points. Point number one, angels are real. They're not just mythological ideas that ancient people used to have. They are real beings. They have ontological validity, if you will. Now, the way we think about angels uh, and, and the way we picture angels and sometimes the way we speak about angels is mythological. There's no evidence that angels actually have wings. Angels are not dead people. That's an idea that's become very popular, but there's, there's no biblical evidence of that. Um, they're in an entirely different kind of uh, uh, status of being. They were created before human beings were. Uh, they have a, a distinct uh, assignments, as, as we'll see a little bit later on, but they are real. We can't see them usually, though on occasion people do encounter them. I just got a couple angel stories after my last uh, message last hour. Um, but ordinarily we can't see them, but it's not surprising that we can't see them because as a matter of fact, we see, we now know from science, a fraction of reality. A minuscule amount of reality is actually available for our senses to interact with. Most of the, the physical world, to say nothing of the spiritual world, is outside of our ability to see to sense, to experience in any way. But in ancient cultures, almost all ancient cultures, they assumed that angels existed. This has been a common assumption, common piece of data, if you will, of most cultures throughout most of time, with the exception of Western culture the last couple hundred years. I remember in college reading uh, one of Plato's accounts of Socrates, the, one of the founders of Western philosophy. And Socrates... Uh, out of nowhere, he starts talking about this angel that would instruct him. He, he said all of the wisdom he ever got, he got from this angel. And some of his stuff was really, really good. The unexamined life is not worth living. You know, that, that, that comes from Socrates. But he, he, he attributed it all to this angel that watched, uh, watched over him and that instructed him. And it just shows how common. He didn't feel the need to argue for it or to prove it. It's just, well, we all know angels exist. Here's what mine does with me. And he said he had encounters with these angels. As a matter of fact, many people have in various ways had encounters with these angels. But from a biblical perspective, it's clear that they are real. They really do exist. Now, the Bible uses a lot of different names for these angels. The most common name, and this might surprise you, is not the word angel. It's the word gods. Over 450 times, the Bible refers to gods. Now, this isn't God with a capital G. It's gods with a small g. These are beings who were created... Uh, they're not eternal uh, in the sense that God is eternal. They, they didn't create the world, but they are higher up on the authority chain, if you will, than human beings are. And so the Bible uh, frequently calls them gods. Through over 300 times, they're called angels, which just means messenger. 
They're called sons of God. They're called holy ones. They're called heavenly hosts. Uh, over 150, 187 times, I guess it is, it uses this phrase, the hosts of heaven. So the, the, the angelic beings are real. The second teaching point is that not only are they real, but they're numerous. There's lots of angels. John says in Revelations 5, he says, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne. Isn't that weird? He looks and he hears the, the, the sound of these, these angels like I did out in the forest. And uh, surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Just John's way of saying you couldn't count the number of angels that were there. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says that we are surrounded by innumerable angels. We're surrounded by more angels than we could possibly count. That verse is what gave rise to the ridiculous medieval speculation of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. But the reality is, is that we're surrounded by innumerable angels. You would call Jesus when he was talking to Pilate. Uh, Jesus said, you know, if I wanted to, I could call 12 legions of angels. A legion was a military unit of 6,000 soldiers. So what Jesus was saying to Pilate is, you think you got authority over me, but as a matter of fact, if I snap my fingers, 72,000 angels would show up just like that. And there's nothing magical about that number, except Jesus is saying, we would overwhelm you in a split second. But my call is not to do that, but rather to show you, Pilate, and the rest of the world that I love you, and therefore I'm willing to die for you. And it's just important for us to wake up to that reality. Kind of like Elijah's servant in 2 Kings chapter 6, where they were surrounded by all these enemies, um, and the servant was freaking out. But Elijah or Elisha was, was very calm, and so he prayed that his servant's eyes would be open. And the Bible says that immediately the servant could see all around them these warring angels. And he said, oh, there's more on our side than is on their, their side. We've got angels all around us. Right here in this auditorium, I believe we've got angels. Hi, how you doing? <laughs> I, I, I don't know where they are. I don't know, you know what it, the, the, the physics of angels, do they take up space or whatever. But there's angels all around us. And, and, and that's an important point, just to know that you're not alone in this thing. There's, there's a whole society of these invisible beings uh, that are on our side. The third point is that angels are under God's direction, not ours. And this one is important. It says in Psalms 103, and this is a strand that's repeated frequently, bless the Lord, all you his angels. You mighty ones, that's here's one instance where they're called mighty ones. You mighty ones who do his bidding, obedient to his spoken word. Now hear this. There is in Scripture not one example of human beings initiating communication with angels. There's many examples of angels showing up and they initiate conversation and so we talk back. But there's no examples of, of human beings initiating any dialogue with angels, let alone commanding the angels. And that's important because a great percentage of those books being published these days, as I read earlier, in the New Age section or the occult section or what have you, and a good many of the teachers who teach on angels these days, the whole focus is how we have authority over the angels. You can command your angels to do this. How to make your angels work for you. How you can uh, talk the language of your angel and make contact and hear from the angel and learn from your angel and, and, and things of that sort. And all I want to say is that that has no biblical precedent once, whatsoever. And for reasons that we'll see here a little bit later on, that is a very uh, dangerous thing to do because you're stepping outside of the proper domain of authority. I've even heard Christians in prayer say things like, I command my angels right now to come down here and do this, that, or the other thing. 
And at best, that is arrogant. Uh, you're confusing the, the lines of authority here. It is okay. There's precedent for praying for God to send an angel. But that's up to God, not you, okay? Uh, the thing is, is that, that in the Bible, when it comes to the spiritual realm, we are to talk to one person only, and that's the Lord our God. And, and since we have direct access to the throne of God, why would we tinker around with angels? <laughs> you know, I get to go to the supreme being, all right? Uh, I'm happy for angels, but I'm not going to spend time trying to make contact, like with a UFO or something. Is anybody out there? Because you start doing that, is anybody out there, and you don't know what you're going to find. And I'll return to that point in a little bit. God commands the angels. Now, he commands them to do a, a wide range of, of activity. And I'm just going to run through these, a sampling of this uh, very quickly. Some of the angels are given charge to take care of us. And so it says, for example, in Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And that, that is spoken to all who follow uh, God. Uh, the devil tries to tempt Jesus with that verse. Uh, later on in the New Testament, it uh, says, hey, since the angels watch over you, why don't you throw yourself off the temple? And Jesus says, no, you're not supposed to tempt God like that. But there is the truth that we have angels watching over us. Hebrews 1 repeats this teaching when it says, not all, uh, are not all angels spirits in the divine service sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And so if you are a person, a kingdom person whose life is surrendered to the Lord, you can know that there are angels who their assignment is to wait, wait on you, serve you, minister to you. Not under your direction, but under God's direction. And they minister to you. We've got angels watching over us. Some of these angels are given special charge over children. Children have a, a special place in the heart of God. So Jesus says this in Matthew 18. Take care that you do not despise one of these little ones, these children. For I'm warning you, in heaven their angels, their angels, continually see the face of my Father in heaven. And whatever else you take from that verse, what Jesus, the main point Jesus is getting at is this. You start messing around with little kids, and God gets very irate, and their angels are going to get very irate. That's why he goes on to say, it would be better for you to have a milestone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea than to start messing with kids. Their angels uh, are, are, are watching over them. A piece that maybe some of you have not heard before is that some angels are put in charge of congregations. Woodland Hills angel, we want to greet thee. Uh, I hope you're really good. Uh, it says this in Revelations 2, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes letters to the angel in charge of various churches to the angel at the church of Ephesus, to the angel at the church of Laodicea and whatnot. There are angels in charge of congregations. That concept, which was universally assumed in the early church, by the way, um, that concept makes sense out of a passage that otherwise is almost impenetrably mysterious. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10, where Paul is telling women that they should not take their veils off when they're praying and prophesying in church. And the reason, he says, for this reason, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And he doesn't explain what he means by because of the angels. And so for centuries, scholars have like wondered, what does that mean? Women should, he's really saying that the Corinthian women were taking the message of grace to be very offensive. And one way of being offensive in the first century was to pray or prophesy and not have your head covered if you're a woman. It was shocking behavior. And so Paul says, don't do that because of the angels. What does that mean? Now, what we've learned is this. 
1945, we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was uh, these writings from a Jewish group that predates uh, the, the time of Jesus uh, about, by about 150 years or so. And we find one of the texts in these, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls has a, um, it's on, how to, on the order of their church service or their synagogue service uh, at that time. And they use this phrase all over the place. Uh, they say things like, make sure that you pray before you break bread uh, because, uh, because of the angels. And women should sit over here and men should sit over there because of the angels. And, and they give all this instruction because of the angels. And it's very clear that they believe that there are angels that are over the Qumran community that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. And some of these angels are in char charge of keeping order in a church service. And if you don't keep order in a church service, the angels are getting ticked off. And Paul seems to endorse that view when he's saying, you guys, you're going to be making the angels mad if you, if you don't dress properly in church service. So there are angels in charge of congregations. There are angels who are given charge over entire nations. It says this in Deuteronomy 32, When the Most High apportioned the nations when he divided humankind, he fixed the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the gods. Uh, this goes back to the Tower of Babel story where God had to separate human beings because we were united for, for evil and, and a united evil is greater than a divided evil. So it was the lesser of two evils where God said, okay, now we've got to uh, divide up human beings. And this text says, this is the kind of text that you could read and because it doesn't fit our ordinary theology, we don't even notice it. But it's important to, to notice stuff that, that maybe doesn't fit your theology. Here it's saying that God said, okay, I've got this many gods these, these angels uh, who can do this kind of duty. So I'm going to put you over this tribe and you over this tribe and you over this tribe. And he, he influenced their movement of, of human beings according to the number of angels that he had or the number of gods that he had. When the Bible refers to the gods of the nations, it's referring to these uh, beings. Now, usually that phrase is used negatively because as we'll see here in a little bit, it appears that Many of these gods of various nations have gone AWOL. They've gone corrupt. So they're using the authority that they have to uh, harm the nation and turn it away from God rather than do what they're supposed to do, which was bless the nation and turn it towards God. If you read Daniel 10 very closely, you have reference to the prince of, of Greece and the prince of Persia, who apparently are the gods of those particular, particular countries. But it's very clear in Daniel 10 that while they still have their authority over those nations, they're using their authority at cross-purposes with God. In this case, to intercept a, an angel that was sent in answer to a prayer uh, that Daniel was, was praying. Uh, Paul refers to powers and dominions and authorities and rulers, and, and those are other names for angels. But it, it's clear that most of the time when Paul uses those terms, he's referring to fallen angels who have like jurisdiction over different levels of society. And so they're out there and they have that, uh, that responsibility. We might ask, why would God do that? Why would God put uh, angels in charge of nations or any other level of, uh, uh, of a social group? And the answer to that question is really no different than the question of why did God put us in charge of the earth? Uh, you know, we were given charge over the animals and taking care of the earth, and our job is to carry out his will on that domain as it is in heaven. Uh, and then God gives us charge over our children, and God gives leaders charge over nations. And how, how we uh, handle that authority, how parents handle that authority, how rulers ha handle that authority affects everything beneath them. 
Well, so also here we find that, we find that, that, that mode of operation just goes up uh, uh, levels above us. And so there are angels that are in charge of nations and social groups and churches and things of that sort. And what they do with that authority will either benefit us to some degree or harm us to some degree. God, as I said earlier, could do it all himself. He has the power to do it all himself, but that's not the kind of world he wanted to create. He wanted to create a world where there are personal agents who have free will, have the capacity to love, and therefore have to have moral responsibility. And so that applies to the angelic realm as well as to the human realm. It's also clear, well, I can't say perfectly clear, but it seems that while, it, while the Bible usually talks about good angels as, as solidly on God's side, irrevocably solid on God's side, and evil angels as irrevocably set against God, there's some suggestion that maybe not all angels fit into one of those two categories, that they are still in a probationary stage as we are. Uh, where we are deciding what side we're going to align ourselves with. Like humans, it seems some of these angels, these gods who are over aspects of society, don't, they, they, they don't necessarily carry out their job well. Now, this is another passage that maybe doesn't fit our standard Western theology, but that's all the more reason to pay attention to it. We need to notice verses that don't necessarily fit our theology, if nothing else, to remind us that we can't put God, box God into our theology. <laughs> The world's a little more vast than our brains can get, our, our, get, get around. So here's what it says in Psalms 82. Listen to this. I didn't make up this verse. This is in the Bible. I found this. God has taken his place in the divine council. Here we have this idea of, of the council of the gods. You find that throughout the Bible. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And here's what he says when he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the orphan. Maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. I say, you are God's children of the Most High, all of you, because that's what you are. Nevertheless, you shall die like mortals and fall like any mortal prince. That's clear that these are not demonic beings because he's trying to encourage them to do the right thing. Uh, but it's also clear that they're not irrevocably on God's side either because he's got to encourage them to do the right thing. But the point I want us to see is this. The, the passage assumes, as almost all passages about angels assume, that what goes on up there affects us down here. And that uh, even issues of social justice, even issues of poverty, uh, how well a nation handles its laws and cares for the needy, that is to some degree at least influenced by how... Uh, godly or ungodly, the principality of power over that nation is. It's also clear that the main way that these angels operate is by influencing people either towards God or away from God. The fourth point I want to make, and the fourth teaching point is, is simply this. Uh, some of these gods, it's very clear in the Bible, some of these angels are good, but what we need to know is that some of them are not. In fact, some of them are not just incompetent, uh, they're evil. They're set against God. What we're told, and we're not given many details about this at all, but we are told enough that there, to know that there was a rebellion in the angelic realm as there was in the human realm. And that uh, with these, the, the myriad and myriads of angels that were there, a portion of them, we don't know how many, but they rebelled against God. Angels apparently had free will just as we do, and they went, had to go through a probationary stage just as we do because love can't be programmed and love's the point of the whole thing. And some of these angels uh, use their free will to rebel against God. Uh, 
creating a war in the spiritual, uh, in the spiritual realm. Uh, these angels are called by ver- various names. The head of the whole thing is called Satan, Satan, which means adversary. The Bible refers to the devil and his angels. Uh, sometimes this rebellious group is called, uh, called principalities and rulers and dominions and authorities and powers and demons. This is the group that in our primal history co-opted human beings in on their warfare. It seems that this rebellion happened before human beings were ever created, so far as we can tell. Because very early on, after we're created, we get co-opted in their rebellion. They use their authority to deceive and, and uh, turn us against God. So we get caught up in their war, which is why the world as it now is, is in a stage of warfare. We are under siege by, by forces, principalities and powers that are set against God. Jesus came into this world primarily to deal a death blow to the head of that army, Satan, to tie up the strong man and then do, to free us from their power and liberate us to now do warfare to carry out the victory that he secured on Calvary. So he came to, to in principle, put an end to this war. D-Day has been fought, but V-Day has not yet arrived. Uh, in principle, the devil is defeated, but we don't yet see it manifested perfectly. And our main job in life is to live in such a way that in every way, shape, and form, we manifest the victory of Calvary over the principalities and powers. What we need to know and take very seriously is that these principalities and powers, while in principle defeated, still wage war in this world. And the primary object of their warfare is you and me. Anyone who is a threat to their domain is going to be an object of their wrath. They want to bring us back into the bondage from which Christ set us free. And if they can't do that, they at least want to nullify us so that we will not be effective as as kingdom warriors. And this is why the Bible describes our struggle in this world as being against principalities and powers. Ephesians chapter 6 says this. Our struggle, note the singular there, This this is the one struggle we've got. Our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers of this present darkness, the world's still under darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, because you know this warfare is going on, see, so much hangs on our being aware of this warfare. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, not just a part of it, so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day. That evil day was just an idiomatic expression for the war zone. We're in it. And having done everything to stand firm. Uh, kingdom people, what we've got to realize is this, that uh, we have a struggle going on. The struggle is not as many people seem to think. It's not against the liberals and against the ungodly media. The struggle is not against evolutionists and abortionists and heretics and gay rights lobbyists or any other particular scape group we might want to go after. After They're not the enemy. To the contrary, they're the ones that we are fighting for, and the way we fight for them is through Christ-like outlandish love. Amen. Our battle, our struggle is against the principalities and powers that hold people in bondage, that pollute their brains, that deceive them and deceive us if we're not careful. Our struggle is against the the powers that make pawns out of people, 
Sadly, because part of the principality and power of our culture is one of unbelief to convince us that this stuff isn't real. We maybe believe, yeah, there's angels and demons, but we, we never live as though there are. And, and, and we, ha- we have inside us an impulse to fight. The Holy Spirit is a warring spirit saying, oh, you ought to be in battle. But see, since that's not real to us, what happens is with a lot of Christians is that what is real to them are those liberals or those people over there. So we start shooting at them. We make them the enemy. The impulse to fight is right. We're just shooting at the people we're supposed to be rescuing. <laughs> and the way we rescue them is not by killing them. It's by dying for them. It's by serving them. It's by, by loving them. Don't waste your ammunition on the people we're supposed to be dying for. Save your ammunition for the real enemy. And that is the rulers and the authorities and the principalities and powers in dark places. If it's God... Here's a, here's a real simple principle. If it's got flesh and blood, it ain't your enemy. In fact, if it's got flesh and blood, there's only one thing you got to know. There's only one commandment about that, and that is your job is to love. Your job is to love them and express the unsurpassable worth that they have because Jesus died for them in every way, shape, and form. And that is what has the power. Like, just like Jesus defeated the devil by dying, so also we defeat the devil and all of his schemes by dying for others, by giving of ourselves, our resources, our, our, our talent and, and, and whatnot. Shoot in the right direction. Which leads me now to these application principles very quickly, four of them. Number one, live with a warfare mindset. Put on that armor and make sure you put on that helmet that keeps your mind in the right place. Know that there's a war going on all around you. Uh, there are more than just cultural forces. There are principalities and powers behind those cultural forces. The God of America, the, the principality and power in charge of America, along with all the other fallen rebel spirits that may be uh, aligned with him, influences us in certain directions subtly. It's part of the air we breathe. It influences us in unbelief. So make sure you put on faith and stand strong in your faith. It influences us to, to, to accept a greedy lifestyle, Though the Bible calls us to live a self-sacrificial lifestyle. Stand firm. Put on the armor and stand firm. Resist the current. Uh, Resist the principalities and powers. Don't become a pawn of the enemy. You're a child of the king. So think like a child of the king. Swim upstream on this stuff. The principality and power of our culture incites us and motivates us to violence, justifying that at every turn. It motivates us towards bitterness and wrath and immoral sexual practices. The God of this age and the principality and power of the air dupes people into being mindless pawns where they live out of their violence and and self-centeredness and greed and, and that just propagates itself over and over and over again. But what God is looking for is a people who are willing to be radically, radically different, who stand up against the principality and power and say, I will not give in to that. I will, I will live a Calvary life. I will purge myself, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, of all that is not of the kingdom, of all malice, of all anger, of all strife, and live the Christ-centered life that he's called us to. I, I the other day, saw a, amen. Okay, I'm getting a little worked up here. But I saw a movie which some of you don't want to see uh, just because it's, it's rated R, and I respect that. It's very realistic in terms of violence and, and some sexuality, and uh, it's not an easy movie to watch, but it's very realistic. But it captured this principality and power deal really, really powerfully, though I don't think they intended to. <laughs> but I'm always seeing stuff in movies that I don't think the, the uh, producers intended. But the movie's title was, it's called Crash. First movie I've ever seen where I actually like Sandra Bullock. Uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was powerful. Here, here's in a nutshell. I got to make this quick. But in a nutshell, 
it, it, it showed brilliantly how people get looped into this uh, atmospheric pollution that causes us to, uh, in the case of this movie, to have racial stereotypes and then to act on those racial stereotypes, which, in, which in then reinforce other people's stereotypes, which leads to violence, which in turn leads to more racism, more stereotyping, more violence, and there's this spiral, and it's as though people can't help themselves. Uh, there's five different groups of people in this movie that are unrelated, but they're all related to the system, the principality and power of racial hatred. And it just shows how, how they're, they're like pawns in this thing. It's, it's so predictable. Here's what you're going to do. Um, and, and the movie's brilliant because it doesn't make individuals the good guy or the bad guys. In fact, it shows the ambiguity of life because the guy who's the most racist ends up doing the most heroic thing, and the guy who's the, the most anti-racist ends up doing the most racist thing. Because it's not about the individuals, primarily. It's about the, princip- it's about the system that keeps people in their neurological and spiritual bondage where we look at people in a certain way and respond in certain ways and, and whatever. Our battle is not against the individual racist. It's against the, the spirit, of prin- the principality and power of racism that uses individuals and keeps them in bondage. Uh, and so it is for every possible sin we might ever Im- imagine. The other, other day I was at a, uh, a banquet, a religious banquet actually, and I was sitting next to a pastor, a Lutheran pastor in a small town, and we got talking and theology and whatnot. And at, at one point, we got talking about kind of uh, race stuff. And uh, he, he assured me that he is the most uh, colorblind person on the planet and uh, is, you know, wonderful in other respects. And then he said this. We, as we're talking, he just starts saying how, you know, this is a free country, and, and I, 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 I'm colorblind. You know, I, I don't uh, see. But uh, there's nothing wrong. With, if, if, a, if a Norwegian owns an apartment complex and only wants to rent apartments to Norwegian, then that should be his God-given American right. And he started going on and on about this and talking about how the genocide of Native Americans never happened. And, and, and the, 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 the politicians of political correctness are exaggerating slavery and how we actually did everyone a favor. And, and I'm listening to this, and I'm so glad I was preparing this sermon. Because <laughs> I, I, you know what? He's got flesh and blood. He's not the enemy. He's not the enemy. I got one job here. And that is to love this guy. I love this guy, you know. And, and uh, you see, it, it, just love him. Because what would happen is if I get angry and I start, well, that reinforces, he has stereotypes of people who do that. Oh, you're the, one of those liberals. Oh, you're one of the, you know. And so if I, if I act the way he predicted that I would act, they'll just feed in. My job is to, as Paul says, that all that you do be done in love. 1 Corinthians 16, 4. So in love, I talk with him. I, I you know, engaged but my, all the while I'm saying, okay, he, he is a victim. He is in bondage to a system uh, that uh, is, is deceiving his, his, his brain. And so I'm doing spiritual warfare as I'm talking to him. Lord, free this guy's mind. Help me to love him. Help me to do whatever I can do in this short little banquet time that we have to, to make some difference in his life. If it's got flesh and blood, it's not the enemy. Live with that warfare mindset. Uh, put on that helmet. And all that you do, let it be done in love. And you've got to be willing to be radical. To take on the principles and powers means you take on the climate of the culture, and, and like Jesus did, and you swim upstream. He calls us to be guerrilla warriors stationed behind enemy lines. Guerrilla warriors, that's what's real. And our job, your mission, should you decide to accept it, is to tear down the principalities and powers. And God uses every Calvary-like act of love that you engage in to do that. 
Uh, very quickly here in the last three minutes, uh, the other application points. Number two, don't blame God for the arbitrariness of life. Look at if in fact there's this society of agents up there making their own decisions and what they do affects us, it's no wonder that we experience life as being largely arbitrary. Daniel didn't know why it took 21 days for his prayer to be answered. Some people would have said, oh, it must not have been God's timing. Other people might have said, Daniel, you lack faith. But what the text tells us is that it had nothing to do with God or Daniel. It had to do with these principalities and powers that were interfering with God's plan in that particular instance. We see less than a molecule on the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of stuff going on here. Job, some wager happened in the heavenlies, and he got caught in the, in, the, in the crossfire, and he never does find out why that happens. Jesus is walking along, as Brenda told us a couple weeks ago, and, and, and he, the Father tells him to pray for brother number 32, not brother number 37 or sister number 23. Now, it wasn't just because God's up there going eeny, meeny, miny, moe, and it's not because brother 37 had more faith than the rest. We don't know why. It's just that there's a lot of stuff going on in this complex uh, creation. God alone knows all the variables, and that's why it's important to listen to God so that we, are, we pray and live most effectively. Don't blame the arbitrariness of life on, on God. Number three, take comfort in knowing that you're surrounded by innumerable angels fighting on your behalf. I, I, you know, I've got the Holy Spirit in me, and that's enough. But there's something about me. Uh, we're wired socially. I like the idea that wherever I go, I'm not alone. I've got angels around me, and they're on my side, and they're fighting on my behalf. You live counterculturally, and sometimes you're going to feel alone. And so the Lord just tells us, you know what? You're never alone. You've got other created beings fighting on your side. And number four, and I say this very briefly, but very urgently, because it's so needed. Never overstep your proper domain. Never overstep your domain. The Bible repeatedly speaks against divination. Divination simply means, look at the word, divination is attempting to get divine knowledge. Attempting to know stuff that God tells us we're not supposed to know. If we need to know it, he'll tell us. When we get on the phone and dial up the spiritual world and say, is anybody out there? There are beings out there. Some are good and some are evil. And you don't know what you're going to get. You don't know what you're going to get. At best... It's dangerous and an act of disobedience. Trying to contact spirit beings, whether it's through tarot cards or, or psychic readings, crystal balls, you know, zodiac or, or all the other tea leaf reading or whatever, it is, from a biblical perspective, dangerous. The Bible says in, in, in 2 Corinthians 11 that even Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light. So I just talked with a lady last week who came up and said, I have an angel that shows up all the time that I contact through these, uh, some, not tarot cards, but some other kind of cards, and then the angel appears, and it's just the most beautiful thing in the world. And my advice to her was, run away. Uh, because here's the thing. Because we're outside of the domain of authority that God gave us, we can't tell the difference. We're easily deceived on that. The only protection is to abide in Christ and walk according to how he tells us to walk. If he sends an angel, wonderful, but we're not to be out there trying to dial them up. Trying to say, hey, angel, can you give me some advice? Because for all you know, you're going to get a demon uh, who maybe looks wonderful and gives you advice that looks promising, but in fact, uh, there's disaster and harm uh, built into that. Uh, we can stand and pray, and i, I, I got to close right now, but I want to invite any who need to uh, have prayer. Would our prayer team come forward? And I invite you to come forward and uh, receive prayer. If uh, you... 
are here this morning and you're not a kingdom person, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, may I invite you to take two minutes out and come up here. To my right, your left, uh, we have a table up here and a person would just love to give you some free literature, Bible and some other things to uh, help you uh, become a kingdom person and start walking that walk. Let's pray with this benediction. Father, help us to go out of here, build the kingdom. Thank you, Lord God, for ministering angels that are around us. We pray, Lord God, that you'd send them when needed to surround us and, and uh, to, to do what you call them to do. Lord God, help us to be the warriors you've called us to be, stationed behind enemy lines, who don't buy into the culture, don't be duped by the principalities and powers, but rather, Lord, look to Calvary at all times to give direction to how we're supposed to live. Lord God, keep us from ever declaring war on flesh and blood but always to be declaring war on the principalities and powers who dupe us and others and, and make victims out of humanity, the kings of the earth that you always intended. And now, Lord God, Holy Spirit, anoint us as we go out and build the kingdom in Jesus' name. And all God's people said one last time, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Go do the kingdom.